Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Transcript Podcast. You've got me, Scott Krisiloff. I'm editor of the Transcript, along with Eric Mokaya, who's our lead author. We sent out a new issue of the Transcript yesterday, and what we picked up was that at the end of the year, the consumer is very strong. People are not really overreacting to the Omicron variant that we're seeing spreading around the world. And confidence in general remains high, but we still have headwinds in the form of labor issues and inflation. And especially the inflation side may make the Fed have to act more quickly than it otherwise would have. And so that that is starting to impact capital markets potentially. Eric, do you have any thoughts? Yes. So this week, most of the earnings calls were from bank CEOs attending a JP Morgan financials conference. And so a lot of comments from the CEOs of these banks in terms of what their outlook is for 2022 and what they're seeing currently. Notably, of course, is that supply chains are easing a little bit. A question which I kept seeing them discussing is the issue of inflation. So there is there are some banks like Lazard who look at it as the inflation is actually going to be modest uh, going forward. And then there are those like Goldman Sachs CEO, David Solomon, who is actually worried that inflation may actually go back to the 1970s and 80s, kind of very high uh, double-digit inflation. So I don't know where you stand on that. I think that the elements of inflation that were always viewed as transitory, I think are starting to get better at the supply chain bottlenecks and stuff. But I think that we have flipped from a deflationary psychology to an inflationary psychology, such that I'm not sure I expect inflation to be going back to the sub 2% zone without some sort of policy intervention. And so I think this flip from the Fed towards a more hawkish stance is one that could persist for a little bit here because the Fed is now on guard for inflation. So if you keep seeing capital markets march higher, if you keep seeing inflation follow that, the Fed appears now to be more likely to tighten than to loosen. And so that's going to probably put a damper on things for a little bit. So I think notably for me, it was the fact that I think that, that David Solomon noted that uh, the Fed did hike 17 times in that two-year period between 2004 and 2006. I was a bit surprised by that. Do you have any context to what happened back then? Yeah, I mean, the Fed had just kind of like ratcheted interest rates higher over time. They just, they got, just like kind of marched them by a quarter point each meeting. But yeah, I mean, I think like the inflation number that we saw last week, I think it was 6.8% CPI. It's important to note, I saw a lot of headlines that were talking about that's the highest since 1982 or something like that. We looked back at the inflation readings going back throughout the 20th century. I think this is like the third or fourth highest inflationary episode that we've had in the last hundred years, which is pretty extreme. You know, there, you, you see these inflation charts where inflation was up at 10% in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, it, the peak inflation rating there was was 10%. But this is, this is a very high inflation year. Like 6.8% is a seriously high inflation number. And the fact that we're sitting still at 0% interest rates and we're still quantitative easing. You know, you, you look at the comments from Goldman Sachs CEO talking about this 1960s, 1970s style inflation. We already have 1960s, 1970s style inflation. It actually more analogous probably to like 1946, 1947 style inflation, which was like post-World War II inflation. 
which was a very extreme inflationary episode. You know, I think the total inflation during that time was like 30% over the course of all of those years. So the value of the dollar dropped by like 30%. Yeah, I mean, we're not, we're not far off from that over the course of a couple of years here. So little surprise then many CEOs are actually very concerned about the, um, yeah, about inflation, as we could tell from the earnings calls. Anything else that you may have noticed yourself from the earnings calls? I think there was something about also Vietnam reopening, which also will be a positive on supply chains. A couple of quotes, more quotes, positive quotes this week from various CEOs are saying that the markets, the supply chain is, is getting a little bit better. I think it was Lang Research and Sunoco that say that. But then, of course, uh, our head says the supply chain is still a mess and <laughs> the worst we've ever seen. Any other thoughts from the earnings calls that you, from our transcript this week? Yeah, there were a couple of company-specific catalysts that we picked up that were only available to our subscribers. <laughs> one on Dish and there was one on Netflix. On Dish, uh, it was interesting to see T-Mobile talking about Dish being an actual factor in mobile phone markets in the United States. That's one that I've been following for a while. Dish is a historically a satellite television company in the US and that market is obviously going away, the linear TV market. But Charlie Ergen, who's the CEO at Dish had invested in basically speculated on Spectrum in the US. So he bought a bunch of, of Spectrum that he had always talked about basically just licensing to other mobile carriers for a long time. This is like goes back five or seven years even now that he's been squatting on the spectrum. And then over time, he's turned having to basically develop his own mobile carrier. And at the beginning of 2021, he talked about 2021 being a transition year for Dish where they would actually be in, in the market. We, I think we picked that up and published it in one of our, our issues. And so at the end of 2021, the CT Mobile, which Dish is piggybacking off of in order to build its mobile customer base. For T-Mobile to say that Dish is becoming a factor in the mobile market, that's a competitor talking about Dish and actually saying positive things about it, which always just is a flag for me as a potential positive. And Dish is still priced as a, as a value stock because its linear TV subscriber base is obviously decaying. So, you know, that could be just something to, as an investment catalyst in 2022 for Dish, having a value company with a catalyst. So that's one I wanted to flag for readers. And maybe uh, the second one that you flagged was about Netflix. I think Netflix are entering the gaming markets. They're very focused with a very interesting model. Uh, I think they have a different model when it comes to entertainment. They don't provide ads. They mostly provide you with a subscription-based um, model. So I think uh, them going into the gaming area with the same kind of model, no upselling, no ads, just giving you entertainment and the thrill of playing the game. So it's a subscription-based way to play games. They're not shy from making major investments, That would, uh, especially if they see good value in those in areas of investment. So I'm guessing gaming market is their next play. It feels like a, a good and important move and a huge catalyst for the Netflix stock itself. Thoughts on that yourself? Yeah, I think the thing that really struck me about it was that they have this competitive advantage, especially in uh, casual gaming, where casual gaming is primarily freemium, where you have like an entire gaming model built around getting free access, plus buying little add-ons here and there, 
or playing to earn free time to play. And Netflix doesn't have to have that because Netflix actually has a basic subscription model. They actually plan to just provide the content as part of that subscription. So it's like competing with, you know, YouTube, which serves ads or, you know, linear TV, which serves ads. It's a much better experience watching Netflix to consume content. And so on the gaming side, it could be a much better user experience as well. So they could, they could gain market share pretty quickly, especially if they just have like one or two viral games. I mean, imagine a squid game-esque game that just goes viral that everybody's playing. And I think in the interview, they actually talked about Among Us, like all we need is one Among Us. So, you know, they already have such a huge subscriber base that they can just serve new content and take over big markets. Side note, I don't understand why they're not in the, in the exercise market. You know, I don't know why they're not a direct competitor to Peloton, but it seems like they could, they could come in and, and own that market pretty easily too. And that content's very cheap to produce. So Netflix is a, is a total juggernaut in global paid entertainment at this point. So, and um, something else that I noted, and maybe you can give me context. I know Costco, uh, one of the port there is about their scale, which is a huge advantage for them. They're doing around 200 billion in sales with 4,000 SKUs versus everyone else. I don't know, like what's, what's your perspective on Costco? I just want to learn a little bit about it. So it sounds like a very interesting business model. They have this membership based, uh, based model, which allows them to a scale advantage. They're able to buy at scale and then afford their members a little bit of uh, a lot of discounts. It, uh, did I get the model right? So how is, does it work? Have you been to a Costco yourself? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Costco is huge in the United States. This is a uh, number two retailer behind Walmart, but very differentiated shopping experience. And yeah, Costco is, again, an incredible company. Costco is just a low cost provider. And like being a low cost provider in a, in a commodity industry is really the only sustainable long-term advantage. And that's what Walmart and Costco, that's the culture that they both share is basically everyday low prices. Yeah. Costco is, is an excellent company. Excellent. Excellent. From a cultural standpoint as well as executional so one more thing that just wanted to point out before we break is the the cybercrime number that was picked up in two different places which was mind-boggling to me it was six trillion dollars impact to the global economy which six trillion dollars is between 20 and 30 percent of us gdp that's a huge huge number that is being lost to cybercrime i don't even it's hard for me to fathom where this is even happening but we saw it in two different places uh that is way off my expectation of how much money is being lost to cybercrime. Any thoughts on that, Eric? I think that if it's it it's not a surprise looking at the trend that you've seen in the past couple of months and and the past year, especially because of the huge cyber attacks some of the companies have experienced from SolarWinds to even Microsoft itself. So, and then also like they are all all of these companies are moving online and creating space for people to actually try out and and then also. I think a couple of quotes in the past that I've seen is where people are automating this. It's very easy to actually do a massive attack on a company using tools that are available freely online. And so this is a huge catalyst and heavily attracted to the cybersecurity industry. I just to see how companies protect their data online. And the, the two quotes are actually from uh, a major, major players in the industry. So one is the financials, which is MasterCard, and then the other is in the tech industry, which is Microsoft. So they are both reading from the same script that this is a very a significant moment and change. As more companies come online, data has to be protected. 
and and security has to be uh, of utmost importance and utmost uh, uh, concern to most of the companies that are out there. So I think, and th there's one from Sentinel One that says that Q4 is actually the busiest <laughs> quarter of the year in terms of cybersecurity. So I think it's also at the same time where there's more scale, there's more more shopping happening online, where there's more activity happening online. At the same time, it's directly correlated to the level of interest in cybersecurity and concern, at least for people being online. So I think this is a, a long-term play that I would pay very close attention to myself. Yeah. Cyber crime is a theme that we've picked up a lot throughout this year and expect to continue to pick up. It does feel like a space where the perception of the problem is high, but the understanding of the solution is low. And so I think people are really spending a lot of money trying to figure out how you protect against these cyber threats and it's getting easier for the cyber criminals to operate. It's more just like off the shelf stuff. You don't have to be extremely sophisticated on the one hand. So there's like petty cyber crime and then there's also organized cyber crime. So the 21st century mafias are primarily digital at this point. And that in and of itself can cause a pretty big problem globally because again, we do all live our lives online now. So. Yep. I think before we close, so there's that, the quote from RH that really uh, interested me in terms of nothing. I think they, they pick up the, a lesson from Disneyland. If they tell uh, you, your, your product is going to be delivered in 45 minutes, or at least you're going to wait for 45 minutes, then at 39 to 43 minutes, they deliver the product. So in terms of not disappointing customers, I think that's a really good theme to pick up as we head into the next year so that we can also be delivering on quality on the transcript as we go on with that. He says, there's nothing worse than disappointing consumers. And I think that's a good point to end up. So thank you for joining us this week. Uh, see you next week uh, for, I think, our final episode of the year as we wrap up uh, the key themes that we've seen this year. So yeah, have a good week. Thank you. Bye.